The ongoing uprisings against police brutality, which began in the spring of 2020 amidst the global pandemic, is the largest recorded protest movement in U.S. history. But long before the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and countless others, Black people in America have been under the heel of violent racial capitalism. The open sores of slavery and Jim Crow have rendered a festering wound of economic inequality in Black communities, from housing segregation to staggering unemployment. In 2016, many Black voters, particularly in the Midwest, stayed home, disillusioned with a system not meant for them. This time around, the Democrats have reclaimed the presidency, but it remains to be seen whether they are willing to guarantee the promise that Black lives matter. This week, I sat down with public attorney, writer, and activist Malika Jabali to discuss the socioeconomic anxiety of Black voters in the Midwest, the Democratic Party's failure to materially improve the lives of Black people, the 2020 elections, the upcoming Senate races in Georgia, and more. I'm Aaron, and this is A Time of Monsters. I wanted to have you on um, because there's a lot of talk about like the black electorate and the working class and what these terms mean. And we've seen the dismal down ballot um, results uh, on behalf of the Democratic Party. Um, But I guess where I want to start was you're from originally from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, what what did you think of the state flipping blue? Were you surprised by that? I'm not. I was not that surprised. I think if you even go back to the Obama years, we saw that, you know, there was this big hype about Georgia becoming purple. And I think if people are actually paying attention to electoral politics and thinking about the power of black voters, that's not a complete surprise. So you could go from 2008 Obama, him being able to energize black voters there is what made it go purple. I think people forget when we're talking about national politics, sometimes we're so focused on the power of like suburban wine moms yeah. or blue collar white people that we forget, <laughs> yeah. you know, our, our influence. And so I think there was probably an inclination to think that, oh, I guess George is becoming more liberal. No, you just got a lot of black people fucking excited. And that's, exactly. you know, and, and that happens in a lot of different elections. You know, I, I do a lot of my work on Midwest black politics and the reason why places like Wisconsin and Michigan have been so reliably blue is because of the ability to bring out black voters in cities like Detroit and Flint and Milwaukee. Mm. So I wasn't surprised at that. And then also, if you look at just kind of fast forwarding to Stacey Abrams's ground game, she pulled so many voters from rural areas in Georgia. And again, when we think about rural voters, they tend we tend to think about white voters. Yeah. But in places like Alabama or Georgia or even Mississippi, where there's like a big black voting population, you can see that in exit polls where there was like an exit poll, I think about Medicare for all. And the majority of voters in Alabama and Georgia or a plurality of voters said they support it. And I would not be surprised if that's because of the strength of black voters saying this is what we're interested in. Exactly. Yeah. I I think that's interesting on that point, because um, it really does depend with these polls, how you define Medicare for all. Some some questions are, would you support a government run healthcare system? Right. And like most people would be like, yeah, of course. But once you talk about the Affordable Care Act, especially when it comes to conservatives, they tend to uh, have less favorable views of it. So I found that surprising, too. I mean, I didn't really find it surprising because I live here and I know what people want. But just to see even, um, you know, in states like Florida on Election Day, who passed the $15 minimum wage, right? Like this is a state that went for Trump, you know. So it turns out, we'll talk about this later, that when you actually speak to the concerns of voters, (laughs) they will fucking vote for you, right? Who knew? Who knew, right? Um, let me me ask you a question about Stacey Abrams, because I am not really up on sort of the horse race and kind of following these people. But as a good leftist, I'm very suspicious of um, black Democrats. Right. Um, Especially ones that kind of seemed ostensibly progressive like Stacey Abrams, but also a little vague. They're in classic sort of like American political fashion, especially with like Democrats. There's this atomization of the efforts made to turn voters out. 
and uh, it has been individualized in the figure of Stacey Abrams um, and especially her organization, um, New Georgia Project. So can you talk a little bit about that and the efforts that um, she started or that even started before her, right, to register Black voters and turn them out? I don't really follow the horse race that much either. But from my limited reporting that I've done on local politics in Georgia, for instance, I talked to um, Nse Ufa, who's one of the organizers out there who a lot of her work is being championed. I would say that, you know, a lot of folks on the ground aren't necessarily. So the people who are mobilizing Black voters don't necessarily share Stacey Abrams's politics. Um, and they're not necessarily like, a part or affiliated with the Democratic Party machine. Mm. We know that a lot of, and I don't really know if this is getting at your your question really, but there's been a lot of work, I think, from like younger, progressive Black people. Yeah. And they can't, and, and they're not necessarily 501c4s either. So they can't necessarily like endorse particular candidates. But when you look at what they champion. So NSA, for instance, has talked a lot about like economic insecurity and working class families. Like it's very class oriented. And so I think there's disillusionment with some of those younger people that, you know, and I don't really want to speak for them necessarily because you can just like read their work Mm -hmm. through some of my reporting. There's some disillusionment that mainstream democratic figures aren't really paying attention to like black working class families through the policies that they're, you know, recommending. Mm. So there, there are a lot of different dynamics. And I think this is just a good example of ways where we need to think with a little bit more complexity. When we even talk about Southern voters, we already know that black voters in general aren't a monolith, but neither are Southern voters and neither are, you know, voters in Georgia. And if you go to Atlanta, you have like different dynamics there as well. So I think getting those those stories out there and understanding like what exactly they they care about is important. And, I, and I've heard kind of this almost an anti-establishment fervor from some of these organizers. Um, and that's a little bit separate from the type of work that Stacey Abrams has done. Yeah. Yeah. I am um, as a former fundraiser for the Democratic Party of Georgia. Uh, I, I've been a canvasser for the Democratic Party in New York um, and in this state uh, most recently. And I applied for the job because uh, it was through my school, like a job search kind of uh, app or something or service. And it said organizer. Right. So I was already sort of like turned off by the Democratic Party and radicalized a bit. But I thought that, well, maybe especially in the South, like, you know, if they're looking to hire organizers, like that's my background. And the first day I went into an interview, I found it was a fundraising job. Right. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to keep it. And all the all we did was go out to uh, places like Buckhead and Indicator and talk to, you know, not necessarily wealthy, but like, you know, upper middle class, middle class like white folks and some people of color, too, who were like so excited to see my black shining face at their door. And they had so much animosity for Trump and Mitch McConnell, which the Democrats were fundraising off of. But they never actually went into communities of color. Like, you're not going to see them in the West End, you know? I mean, um, <laughs> at least I opened the door for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have the glasses. I look, I look like less threatening. So you know, because when I had like a brief moment um, before I started grad school. Not brief. It was a couple years, and I couldn't really get a permanent job. And so I did a job organi- organizing for the Democratic Party in Air Georgia. Quotes. For people that didn't see that, he did it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I went to Decatur. So for folks who don't know, there are different types of Decatur. There, there is the, the Decatur that you, the deck that we know of from Outkast that you might hear of from rap songs, the East Side. And then there's the city of Decatur. Exactly. So where you probably went and where I went was the city of Decatur, which is wealthier. It's a, a well-off enclave, which is kind of a suburb of the city of Atlanta. But it's like, it's not like a far-flung suburb. It's an inner-rung suburb. Yeah. And they didn't even open the door for me. And after a couple yeah, of days of being in the heat, trying to convince these white people to open the door for, for me and my little natural hair, I was like, all right, this ain't going to Wait, did you have a fro at the time or some shit? Yeah, I had like a, I don't even know what I was doing. Oh, no, nah, they're not going to open the door for you. Fuck that. <laughs> it was like, a, it was it was doing what everyone is doing. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I, I, I definitely understand like how the Democratic Party typically organizes and the moderates and the centrists that they tend to prioritize over black voters, which is why you can find a lot of, you know, younger black folks, younger black Democrats who can be disillusioned by the party, even though they are like 
promoting Democrats in a way that we aren't as leftists, as you know, myself as a socialist. I mean, even among them, there's disillusionment. So so that's actually a perfect segue because um, you wrote this amazing uh, article in 2018, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Um, People should read it. I'll link it in the show notes. And you talk about the disillusionment um, from black voters in uh, red states in the Midwest, specifically. You focus on Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially in the South, about um, voter oppression and disenfranchisement. And you even tweeted something out recently saying that this is the this is the amount of black people that are incarcerated in, you know, several of these states that Joe Biden won. Had they not been incarcerated, right, or were felons, they were able to vote, he would have won by a bigger margin, right? But besides all of that, um, actually, in the article, you bring up that it's it's disillusionment, distrust, and cynicism, right, um, that led a lot of people to not vote for either candidate. Can you explain for people why is it that Black folks in um, Wisconsin, in the Midwest generally, would not, and in 2020, to be fair, they came out in these cities, right? That's a whole different conversation, though, about Trump and the existential threat, as liberals would say, that he posed, right? Which did turn people out. Um, But could you talk a little bit about in 2016 and the failure of Hillary Clinton to meaningfully translate any sort of material policies that would benefit the Black community and sort of a history of deindustrialization as well? Yeah, sure. I would preface, or I have like this disclaimer before I, I get into it to say that what I wrote is a... These are portraits of people's lives based on some data. Mm. And part of my problem, I guess a big problem that I have is that we do not have enough people, enough researchers, enough even, you know, party operatives who care enough black people to figure out what the hell is going on. Exactly. If we want to know what black people think, we often have to have black organizations do that work. And so I'm operating from limited sets of data, but it's it's very basic data and it is easily available. And I would love if somebody could do more peer-reviewed research about what impacts black voters in the Midwest. If I were, you know, doing a dissertation, like that would be my dissertation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What gets them to come out to vote and what doesn't. But from the limited evidence that we have, 2016 pointed to Donald Trump winning not because of you know, anything special about him, it was less that he won and more so that Hillary Clinton lost because not get a marginally different turnout than Mitt Romney or George Bush or Ronald Reagan or any of his other Republican predecessors. The voter turnout for Republicans was up by like 1%, which is insignificant, like relatively insignificant. And specifically in the Midwest, it was minuscule. He got 700 more votes in Wisconsin in 2016 than Mitt Romney did in 2012. Mm. So basically like nothing. And the voter turnout for white people in Wisconsin actually declined by 1%. Yeah. Hillary Clinton lost that state by 22,000 votes. She lost right? the state by 22,000 votes. And so the way that people interpreted that, so this is kind of the thesis that I'm coming up with based on the limited data that I have, where A, in census data, it's showing that the primary reason why Black people around the country said they didn't vote was because they weren't interested or they did not like the candidates. That comprised about 47% of census answers. And things related to voter suppression, which as we know, and as a Georgian who has experienced voter suppression in the state, being like in a very deep red state, well, formerly deep red state, voter suppression has always affected my vote. Mm. At the same time, a lot of establishment Democrats use that as a reason to not talk about their own failures. And there were a lot in 2016. We cannot use Republicans as a perpetual boogeyman and not really think about what is affecting black people and what do they care about? We have people speaking on behalf and white people speaking on behalf of black Midwesterners and not asking them basic questions or looking at basic like data sets. Mm. If 47% of the reasons why black people around the country are saying they didn't vote. The next question is, well, why, why didn't they vote? Like, mm. I mean, of course, seven percent of why they're not voting is because they don't like the candidate or they d- didn't, they weren't interested in the election. We should unpack that. So my reason for going to Milwaukee and talking about the Midwest was to unpack that. So there were, there were issues with mobilizing. That's one. The fact that Hillary Clinton had even fewer campaign offices in Wisconsin than Barack Obama did 
even though, you know, we were all talking about Donald Trump, like maybe pulling out a win and, yeah. you know, these are possibilities based on the polling. Like, how do you have fewer, you already know that you're like not super tight with black people the way that Barack Obama is. Why would you have fewer campaign offices than Barack Obama? Well, you, you kind of answered the question in your, in your, uh, in that article, right? Because, and we saw it with the Joe Biden campaign, which you wrote another article about, but it turns out he won. It's because of the targeting of these moderate conservatives who overwhelmingly turned out for Donald Trump in 2020 yeah. and in 2016, Yeah, right? And if you look at the data now from 2020, even though the same districts that voted for Trump in 2016 were the same ones that voted for him in 2020, and the same you know districts that voted for Hillary Clinton were the same ones that voted for Biden in 2020. So it, it, was, it was a matter of turnout and not enough people were motivated to vote for Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin. I cannot speak for it like every other state but I looked closely at Wisconsin and that's what was going on. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is, well, what can create disillusionment? And when you talk to black people on the ground, they are grappling with arguably the worst economic crisis of any other black community in the country. Mm. Minnesota, possibly second. But if you look at any research about the Midwest and like economic outcomes for the African-American community, Wisconsin and Minnesota and Minnesota are constantly like kind of going head for head. Yeah. And the Midwest in general is considered the worst for black people on a number of socioeconomic outcomes. So Wisconsin, for instance, has the highest black male incarceration rate that affects whether or not black men can be employed. That affects their economic security. So if they don't have a job and if they and they've been feeling this for decades, like since deindustrialization for about like 40 years, mm. for to them, the ghetto remains the ghetto no matter who's the president. Like those are literally the words that, yeah. you know, one of the, the residents told me is like the ghetto always looks like the ghetto. So what's the point of me going out to vote? Nothing fundamentally changed. Nothing fundamentally changed. <laughs> Like Joe Biden said, we need to you know, need to be doing like that is his aim. Nothing will fundamentally change. And you tell that to black people there and it's like, OK, well, then what's the point of me coming out? <laughs> yeah. So black men are facing a very acute economic crisis in Wisconsin. They have the highest black is the highest black male joblessness rate in Wisconsin than anywhere else in the country. Like 52 percent. right? Yes. Yeah. Imagine more than half of the black male population in Wisconsin does not have a job. That's fucking insane. It's a, it's it's crazy. And the fact that none and so it, I I'm like I sound like this because I'm livid because I love my people mm. and these are very like basic things that we should be talking about that just are not on the agenda except every 4 years when maybe mm. a democratic politician will give lip service to it. But when it comes to black people, it's always okay, it's just about voter rights, which obviously is important. But we need to be talking about things that affect people's day-to-day day-to-day lives that don't just impact you at the ballot box. Exactly. And don't just impact you one day every four years. What about the ongoing systemic crisis that Black people have to deal with 24-7 in this region? And that's really what the piece was about. Let me ask you a question. I have my own answer. We might have the same answer. But what is it about... You could even approach it from a historical perspective because there is... A strat- there was a strategy shift, right, at the uh, the nascent beginnings of neoliberalism and sort of the realignment of the party where the Democratic Party nominally, you know, through lip service, decided to focus on black voters as well as like college educated voters and sort of severed ties from like unions and the working class. Right. But w- why do you think it is that the Democratic Party um, is unable to form a meaningful message that translates some sort of promise, not even just, just like, you know, like, um, I wouldn't even say promise. I want to say goal, right? Because campaign promises mean nothing, but really concrete steps towards addressing systemic, um, institutionalized racism. What, what, why, why can't they do that? Do they just hate black people as much as the Republicans do? Or I feel like this is a leading question. Um, because- <laughs> I, I tend to do that with my guests. I'm sorry, but answer how you, answer how you please. No, I'm messing with you because that's the same way that I would lead it. Um, you can't talk about institutional racism without talking about capitalism and Mm. Democrats are capitalists. Nancy Pelosi was very explicit about that. Somebody asked her. The town hall debate. Yes. You're. Yes. Yes. Or the the town hall, not the debate, but the young gentleman asked her, 
Yeah, go ahead. And he said, I think something about the fact that, you know, more young, I don't even remember what his question was. More young people are in favor of <laughs> socialism and looking at capitalism negatively. She said, let's face it, we are capitalists. Yes, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. So if this is the the mindset of the people who are running Washington, D.C. from the supposedly center left, you know, the Republican Republican spearmonger them as leftists. They're not the left. They are just <laughs> left of center. They're conservatives in my book. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. To Republicans, they are left of center. But anywhere else, they would actually be conservative. Yeah. So they fearmonger on that. And Democrats adopt the same messaging. They mm. are a capitalist party. They are led by two people who got more Wall Street funding during their campaigns in the primaries than anybody else. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden got more Wall Street money than anybody from whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans. Mm. Hillary Clinton was supported by Wall Street. So they're not going to challenge a system where they benefit. I, I mean, I think that is the bottom line. Like, how could they possibly challenge the people who are donating to them? who are giving them access and who are, you know, making sure that when or if they leave D.C., they'll have some cushy lobbying job. Exactly. I, uh, I, I don't think it really is deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I told people like that the Democratic Party is just really a money laundering scheme. You know what I mean? Where they like just like they sell you hopes and dreams and all you get is like gridlock for like four to eight to like 12 years because they actually don't want to govern, you know, like it would require them because their base comprises what some people call, I mean, I guess this term is debatable, the PMC class, right? Or like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? We were just talking about those people in Decatur, right? Upper white middle class, like the people who have Black Lives Matter signs and like love is love and all that shit. Yet, like, you know, if you a nigga and you step on their lawn, they're going to call the cops on you. I'm saying mm -hmm. like these are these are these people. But then they also really do have this like tangible base of like black and brown working class people. So those two interests are diametrically opposed, those two class interests. So it, you would have to like, if you campaign on one thing, you would have to lose the other. And they are terrified of like losing that corporate base, right? Right. And and I actually, I don't even know if it's going to come out, but I wrote a piece for The Guardian about this where you could even satisfy all of those parties because... Let's just take like a professional manager, someone who's in the, in the part of the PMC. Mm. Arguably, I am. You know, you have a lot, a lot of black women who are professionals, we're lawyers. Like we want. To You're a class trader. It's cool. You said what? You're a class trader. It's cool. I'm fucking with you. Absolutely. You know, I consider myself a working class professional because, like, I'm just I'm not far enough removed from that no. to like, no, you're not. identify as a separate class. Like economic precarity is still a real thing exactly. for you. Like you know, it's huge yeah. for, for a lot of black because we're most of us. You know, on average, like we have more, we take on more student loan debt than any other demographic mm. professional mm. black women. Or black women in general. Mm. Um, and so we spend all this money for these professional degrees, but that's like a whole, that's a whole nother topic. Mm. So, but that's the but that's the point though. You can have people who are in this professional managerial class, but they have student loan debt. Mm. They don't want to, you know, they have hopes and dreams. They don't want to be tied to an employer who might like be sucking the life out of them all the time just so they could have health care. Like I have a homie who <laughs> who who jokes around with me who who calls my job like my healthcare provider because that's yeah. like won't fail to like, that's, like, that's why I stay with them because I have healthcare. Like I love fighting and traveling full time, and yeah. I can do that because I have a healthcare provider. Exactly. So the because the things that we're talking about that mainstream democratic socialists are talking about are the same things that centrists lobby for across the pond. Mm. So if you go to Amsterdam, if you go to London, you cannot find even conservatives who would be against like lower tuition or free college tuition. Exactly. High quality education or free healthcare or subsidized healthcare or socialized medicine or whatever. So, you know, I don't even think Democrats are justified using, you know, their moderate base as a scapegoat for the policies that, you know, like a Bernie Sanders is talking about. Mm. You know, they're talking about socialism. What? It's not. That's not even socialism. Yo, like, man, I was I was watching because I'm living with my folks right now. Right? I'm supposed to be house sitting for them in a couple months because my sister just had a baby and my mom's going with her back to Africa. So I'm here and, you know, I'm forced to, like, have political debates and fucking see CNN on the news every time I go downstairs to get something to eat. Right. And uh, the other day there was this woman. She's an actress, this Latina actress. And she was 
saying that like, you know, the Biden victory is great and the Latino community oh, yeah. really showed like, you know, they showed up and, um, you know, he's not a socialist and all this. Right. And immediately whenever I hear the word socialist on TV, I'm just like, yo, like what would you say? You know what I mean? And my 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 sister tried to say to me that, um, oh, well, you have to understand, Aaron, that these people came from socialist countries. And I'm like, dude, what, what do you think that I'm asking? What do you think? I don't even consider myself a democratic socialist, right? I call myself a communist. But, you know, for pragmatism's sake, I'm a democratic socialist. I'm a social democrat. I'm not trying to start a revolution in the United States. I just want some health care, motherfucker, right? So it's like just even, and we'll talk about this, um, you know, a little later towards the end, but even the centrists saying that socialism, Medicare for all, defund the police, right, um, was a negative outcome for them in not winning these down ballot races when it's like, Motherfucker, all the people who supported Medicaid for all won their races. They all won. I mean, and even if you, you know, because there's this argument, well, they won in liberal districts. So, I mean, so are you saying that a moderate district can't win on Medicare for all, even though in deep red states, the majority of voters in the Democratic primary said that they wanted a single payer government health care plan for all type systems. Even a slim majority of Republicans, right? I think. Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah, bro. Uh, we're talking about popular policies. These are not far left policies. And it's almost like, am I living in some weird, like, you, like backwards alternate universe where the things that people are saying are popular because five people say that it's going to scare people. Now we have to listen to those five people. It's absurd. It's absurd. And it also has to do too with, um, before we jump to the next topic, I do want to mention this to people. Uh, as someone who is, um, and yourself too, I'll probably realize this, as someone who has worked for the Democratic Party, I don't think that people, when I say that, I didn't, I, when, only when I was in Georgia did I work for the party. Most of the campaigns that I worked on were contracted out to consulting firms who run all these polls and shit like that. And they're just worried about like numbers and statistics and coverage and not actually voter persuasion and ads as well. Right. Which all of these people get a cut of, whether it's like eight to 15 percent or something, shit like that. Right. As like, you know, these ads are pushed out. And I don't think people realize how much power the consulting class has over the party and in terms of shaping the messaging. Mm. Right. That's that's really I mean, I I would love to learn more about that. I think I mean, because I've heard I've heard people talk about that when I've talked to other organizers. They talk about the fact that you have like disproportionately like white men who are in these consulting jobs. Oh, hell yeah. They were all white. dudes, Right. And they push black people instead of from strategy into the groundwork, into the ground game, into canvassing, even though like we might have tools or strategies or insights that they don't have. And some of that insight probably would have helped in 2016. Some of that insight probably would have helped, you know, Bernie Sanders with his primary. Exactly. Um, but we don't think of like a black people as really votes to be earned or a demographic to learn or understand. So we have all these polling, all this polling that ends up being centered on, okay, well, what will scare moderates? Mm. What will scare like white Midwestern voters? And it's not even based on it's based on like these small samples, but it's not looking at like large groups and factions of people. And, you know, going back to what you said in terms about like voter persuasion like that. Why is that not a thing? If, if we believe that something is valuable and moral and practical and makes sense, why would you not try and persuade people to support a Medicare for all or free college tuition Especially if Bernie Sanders gets on Fox News and everyone's like raising their hand. I know. And clapping for him and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, last thing I'll say about that. I don't want to make a, a character judgment, but I'll tell you, these people hate people. Like when I say that they hate people, like they truly are the most. Mis I hate people. Right. But I'm a communist. I realize at the end of the day, you know, no man is an island unto himself type of shit. You know what I'm saying? So you but, put yourself to not hate people. Is that it? Yeah. For the, for, I love, I always say, I love, uh, I love humanity, but I hate people. Okay. When I say that these people, actually people are going to cancel me for this. We're like, this motherfucker, yo. Like, no, but really though, when I tell you that these people really don't like people, like they really despise their base. But that's just a character. That's an anecdotal kind of thing. But I'm maybe one day I'll write a book about my experience. Yeah, I want to learn more. I would love to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like blacklisted from everywhere already, so it's fucking matter. I'm never gonna work again for the Democratic Party. But so I, I wanted to jump to this, yo. Um, so Obama, right? Um, and I guess to start it in a granular sort of way, uh, I'm 30, so that was the first president that I voted for, and um, I cried the night that he got elected. You know. Um, it was a beautiful, I mean, I think that most leftists I've talked to 
like share the same kind of reaction, you know, but you're seeing this. Let me let me step back a little bit before I go like before I go off. You're, you're seeing this weaponization of identity politics, especially with someone like Kamala Harris. Right. And it's where the Democratic Party thinks that aesthetically speaking, all they have to do is put a pretty black face right up and that um, these white liberals and they think that black people because white people think about race. They think that black people think about race the same way they do. Right. So it's like if you just put a nigga up, it's going to be cool. Right. But we already know, you know, we got some choice words for them. I won't repeat. Right. (laughs) Yes. But also a lot of black people, unfortunately, do feel that way. Okay, so go into that. Explain talk about that a little bit. Where, you know, I have homies who know that they even recognize like they were not supportive of Kamala Harris. They were um like during her campaign run, they were advocating for other politicians and even working on their behalf. And when it came down to her being VP and they had Mary J. Blige coming out. <laughs> When she stepped out and then she's talking about HBCUs and making and she says systemic racism, suddenly all is forgiven. Hmm. And we just forget her prosecutorial record. We I was talking to somebody today, and because we were talking about Obama too, and it's like you cannot say one critical thing about Barack Obama in most black families. Bro, I called him a coon one time in my living room and I almost got kicked out of my house, man. <laughs> Like you, we still cannot say shit about him after you know this. Uh, I was trying to come up with like an O Biden. You know they do Obama. No, Biden. it really is it. It's O Biden. That's what it is. The O Biden administration and then the the Barris administration. We will not be able to say shit about Kamala Harris, no. and so we get wrapped up in that too. And it bothers me so much. I think partly because I saw it so much growing up. Like I, w- I was able to see that representation, and I understand what that does to the psyche of a people who have been told for their lifetime and their parents' lifetimes and the generations before that that we are inferior, that we are not worthy, that we cannot ascend to certain heights. And so I had the privilege of growing up in a city, of growing up outside of Atlanta. Where, you know, I never saw a non-black mayor. All of my mayors were black when I was a kid. Mm. You know, from a kid to to now as an adult, I never saw like a non-black fire chief or non-black police chief or non-black anchors. Like that was that was my life and that was my worldview. It was like, oh, I already know black people can do anything. Exactly. So for me, Kamala doesn't really translate to a whole lot because I've already seen us popping. Like I've yeah. I've seen the HBCU strolls, I've been to the Spellhouse homecomings. Like and I and I get what that does for us, but then what's next? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, Kamala Harris wasn't even not to mention that she like didn't receive a single vote in the primary because she dropped out before they even started. But she was deeply unpopular among Black people in her own state. I mean, including Black, and I don't know about her um, how she was a Black woman in her state, other than you know anecdotes from like other activists and people who are involved in social justice and criminal justice issues, but even Essence, they did a poll. And Essence is not a left-wing media outlet, but Essence is geared towards the precise demographic of Black women who would theoretically support Kamala Harris. Mm. And when they did a poll, the number one response in terms of who people wanted to vote for for president was undecided because, you know, we were still trying to figure stuff out. It was Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Joe Biden. And I, I guess Kamala was after that, but she wasn't in the top three. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, that, that I think that's the most insidious thing, right? Is that the Democratic Party and like most blue check like libs, like I've seen the most insane shit on Twitter because, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot, a little bit too much. And I'm seeing like people like Jamel Hill, which context, she's a black capitalist. Right. So let's be clear about that. Right. You know, like skin folk and kin folk. Right. You have basically these black capitalists, these black libs um, who are saying that this election was about race, who are saying that you can't talk about like, you know, the working class because that denotes like while they also acknowledge that black people are part of the working class. I mean, I don't know what question I'm asking. I guess like, are there any detrimental effects to like sort of this like avoidance or even complete like um, criticism of any like class-based analysis and only relying on the identity of race? I want to see what she said, because I vaguely remember the dust up over this. And I know Brie Newsom had said something similar. And if I'm not mistaken, at least with Brie's tweet, it was coming from a statement Bernie Sanders made. And it's a critique that I've had of him as well. 
So I think there are like a few different dynamics going on where one, you do have a certain like black capitalist class that does not really have a class consciousness or they have a class consciousness, but it's with their professional interests. And so for them, capitalism has worked out mm. you know, on an individual level, even though, you know, there's precariousness for just about all of us. Um, but right now they're in good positions. And so it doesn't really register to them that you can have black people who are disillusioned with electoral politics because there has been no material change in their lives. Mm. And so that's like kind of that faction of people who have gotten on social media to berate black people about not voting and you vote or die. And if you don't, you know, all this comes down to the vote, 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 vote. Mm. You know, like that's all they know. Yeah. This one electoral option. And so that lacks really any empathy or understanding of what happens when black people feel so like kind of distrustful of a system that hasn't hasn't changed for them. Yeah. Like I we need to we need to sit with that some more and understand it more and talk with them more. And that's why, you know, that's such a central feature of my work because we just don't we don't even have like a lot of studies on it. Yeah. And it bothers me. I also do recognize the critique of like and I'm only I'm talking about Brie Newsom because I don't know what Jamel's Hill mm -hmm. what Jamel Hill said exactly, but I know Brie Newsom had a similar argument about Bernie Sanders because when he says the working class, he often is referencing the white working class. And so mm. that word is used interchangeably, not just with leftists, because, and I think a, a third dynamic, I'm like jumping around no, a bit, yeah. but a third dynamic is also that leftists are a bit sensitive to that because we know that there are people who make that argument in bad faith. Exactly. And they've made a, a very bad faith argument that, you know, Bernie Sanders is only, you know, how will this benefit black people? Because, you know, we need to like targeted programs and we need universal programs and targeted programs. Exactly. It's not an or situation here. At the same time, when Bernie Sanders has talked about working class voters, for instance, he was talking about working class voters going to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party lo losing working class voters. When if you look at exit polls, Joe Biden won voters who are making under $50,000. Mm. So like the inference there is that he's talking about white people who left the party because black people ain't left the party. Yeah. So who else could he be talking about? Yeah. So I think, you know, you have these different dynamics and it's and it's really kind of hard to have these conversations in good faith on social media. But I think like we all need a reckoning. I think the white left needs to reckon with its inability to think of a multiracial working class and often catering to white working class people and not people um, more broadly. Centr uh, centrists and moderates do the same thing. We, we center whiteness so much, period. Mm. It's the default of our politics. It's, it's, it's the default. Exactly. And Mayor Claire McCaskill did the same thing, even when, you know, the ballots were rolling in after they were done being rolled in from Wisconsin and Michigan, where it showed that these black urban districts is what flipped those two states to Joe Biden. And she gets on MSNBC saying we've lost, you know, our way and we need to get those voters back who went to Republicans like, girl, you didn't just see these. Two states went back Bruh, to Joe Biden because this, <laughs> like, this is an aside, but I don't know why the fuck she's on TV. I'm like, didn't you lose a race to a Republican? Listen, like, <laughs> they what, love losers. Exactly. What special insight do you think you have that is going to get people to win? Like, I, I don't know, girl. You confusing me here. I, I feel like you made a good point. Um, I mean, you made several good points. Um, but one that like stuck out to me was that you have folks on the left, um, the white left who um, I hate the term class reductionist, right? I mean, I think that some people would even call me a class reductionist because I do believe that like the the kind of driving force of like all of this like racial tension, and it is something outside of just class, but it is fueled by an economic system which mostly profits off of the labor of black and brown people all over the world, right? Um, and you can't have any anti-capitalist movement without a black liberation movement and vice versa. But you have a lot of like, I will call them class reductionists on the left who think that, you know, once we get, even if they're social Democrats or democratic socialists, right? Once we get Medicare for all, racism will magically like go away, right? And you even see this with like, I wanted to bring up, you wrote an article about Ice Cube, right? And his um, agenda for a black America or something like that, I think it was called. And it was really more libertarian-esque and like kind of market-based, 
Right. And so actually his his plan itself, it's and this is what is so fascinating to me, and I'm not going to make this too long if this is not like mm. the thread you're trying to go down. What's fascinating to me is that the plan itself, the written plan, was very centered on like government interventions. Mm. It was talking about regulating the financial industry. He talked about a federal jobs guarantee. These are things that are coming from like Derek Hamilton and Sandy Darity. Sounds kind of socialist a little bit. You know what I mean? like economic leftists like when you read their work it you know they talk about like these big like government interventions and disrupting you know the private sector so i was confused really by by ice cube for a lot of different reasons but one of them is that he has this plan that talks about like a strengthening public sector because that's where black people often get their employment historically but then going on, you know, these like podcast interviews and, and YouTube interviews and just like mm-hmm. his whole media spiel was getting the government out of our business. So to me, it was just like, did you even read your own plan? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And most of all, too, you brought up a good point in that piece. Um, and I like that one, too. Uh, and most of all, you went to the I understand that he went to the Biden campaign who kind of rejected him. But then you went to the Trump like admin who Republicans are not interested in the expansion of government to facilitate social services, nor do they give a fuck about black people. So it was kind of like, are you just trying to build clout for yourself to say, hey, I did this or you know what I mean? It was incongruous with the goals in mind that he had. Exactly. Exactly. So it it was confounding to me because I actually liked is the contract for Black America. I actually Mm. liked it quite a bit. I mean, and there were some market-based incentives in there, you know, like the typical increased Black homeownership to um, fix the racial wealth gap. But the scholars that he clearly has been kind of learning from, they've already said that that is not what's going to fix the racial wealth gap Mm. because there's like a it, it's it comes from a racial inheritance, not from home ownership. That's how we have this large wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so a lot of these things, it's like I just need him to pay attention to the people that he's citing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I brought him up in connection, I guess, with the, the kind of like tied in is I brought him up in connection with these class reductionist white leftists because. There seems to be a failure to understand that race and class are inextricably intertwined. I mean, I've done like an episode on this with Matt Christman. People can go back and listen to it. But, you know, the Civil War and Reconstruction, rather, was like the the true sort of beginning or the hope for a multiracial social democracy. Right. Where Reconstruction and the Freedmen's Bureau not just benefited like newly freed slaves, but also like poor whites as well. Right. I mean, like, you know, the proliferation of public schools. Right. And other social services. And if you're focusing, and that's not to say that Black people do not have specific needs, right? If you want to talk about addressing police violence, right, something that disproportionately affects the Black community, that's something that you need to go out there and communicate to Black people specifically, right? Um, But yeah, there seems to be just like, you know, whether it's fucking Ice Cube or, you know, some reply guy on Twitter, like it seems to be like people are not understanding that like, Racial capitalism, right? I like that term, right? Whenever I hear the word capitalism, I wish that people could always put the racial in front of it, right? Because that is the foundation, like, of Western capitalism as we know it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a racialization of people. So, yeah. I'm nodding my head for people who, since y'all can't see me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just not heard time, so now I'm happy audible. <laughs> yeah. Correct. I agree. Um, so... We're seeing in the wake of the dismal down ballot um, results where these moderates like completely ate shit and are blaming uh, progressives for, um, you know, slogans like defund the police and Black Lives Matter. What what the fuck is that about, man? Like, like, how is it that you could go off if you want, because it really makes me upset that you 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 claim that you are a party for people of color and black people specifically. Yet black people in the grassroots, especially young black activists, have real. And she's shaking her head again for y'all that can't see. She's about to go up. Bigger. What, what is no, what like is bigger. with that? What 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 the fuck are they doing? Frankly, it's racist. It is. Mm. It goes back to what I said before about centering whiteness, and there are a variety of of ways that this is a materialization of white supremacy, and it's not the. Ku Klux Klan robe wearing kind. It is the latte sipping. I'm going to call the manager at Starbucks kind. Mm. It is where 
you erase the influence, the priorities, the demands, the the needs of a group of people because you don't find their demands or problems as important as your own. Mm. And so you have this goes, you know, again to a Claire McCaskill, who was one of those people who was saying, well, we got to start looking at the white working class. Like that's one arm of it. Then you have a Jim Clyburn who is also internalizing this this white supremacist, you know, talk yeah. that we need to focus on. So while Claire is talking about, you know, these defected Repub- these, you know, disaffected Democrats who are now Republican, you get a Jim Clyburn and this other, uh, I can't recall her name, Spamberger. Spamberger, yeah, from Virginia or something, right? Yeah. Who are saying, well, actually, we need to center white moderates. So there is this fight for people who clearly are not trying to fuck with you know, the demands of the Democratic base. Hmm. And so if again, if you go back to exit polls, you could look at where the majority of Democrats were in terms of supporting socialized medicine, in terms of supporting canceling student debt. If you look at exit poll or just polling of, of the Democrats in general, a plurality of, of them said that they support defunding the police. Hmm. A plurality of Black people said they support defunding the police. So if you have all the data presented to you saying that these are actually good measures that are impacting this base that we quote unquote care about, that we want to you know bring front and center as figureheads. But when it comes to the things that actually affect their lives, now they have to go to the wayside because you have to worry about the woman drinking a latte mm. who could go to Trump anytime she wants to. Since, again, 55 percent of the white women who voted voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. So this is a centering of a of a different kind of whiteness. And obviously, you know, there are class interests involved in that. But because the people that they are centering are white people, that's like why why I'm bringing up. Yeah. And, you know, you you cannot say that you care about a group of people and listen to black women and use all these slogans and then th- consistently throw us under the bus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, because a lot of black people respond to critiques about white supremacy, I feel like that's a way for us to really understand just how mm-hmm. the Democratic Party functions. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Could you expand on that a little bit when you're saying the way black people respond to white supremacy? Because I think our class consciousness is still growing. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a little bit of a disconnect when we see when we talk about like working class people or middle, or, you know, like if we talk about working class people or um, victims of capitalism, I don't know if a lot of us really see it in those terms. Like the majority of black people are probably like, eh, I think capitalism is OK and it can yeah. be formed. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if if I even like just talk to some progressives that I know, they're like, you know, I don't know if we should be talking about capitalism yeah. like that. That might turn, you know, other black people off and that might turn moderates off. Yeah. But I think if you te- if you if you frame this weakness of the Democratic Party as if you connect it to, to race and if you say a pro-capitalist party is an anti-black party, I think that could resonate with black people more mm. than talking about capitalism, like yeah. it's inherently anti-black to do the things that Claire McCaskill and Jim Clyburn is talking about. Because if we're saying we don't want to defund the police, you are saying you want to continue inflicting harm on Black communities. You're saying that it's more important for Susan to feel safe than for Jamal and Keisha Mm. to not have their lives be snuffed out by perpetual policing and terrorism in our communities. Mm. I feel like that messaging would resonate more if we were more if, as leftist black people, whatever, were more conscientious about tying capitalism to anti-racism mm. or to anti-blackness. In particular. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it reminds me of this quote from um, Brother Kwame Ture, who said that um, racism is not a question of attitude. It's a question of power. If you're an anti-racist, you must also be an anti-capitalist, right? Absolutely. And I, I think that was one of the most kind of cogent ways to put that uh, dialectical relationship um, between race and class, right? Um, I guess kind of what I wanted to end on, um, well, two things. One, maybe this is a bit inconsequential, but I think it's interesting. Trump doubled his support among Blacks and Latinos, which, again, it's like, you know, it's insignificant, really. But at the same time, though, man, I was... Some one of my mutuals posted this video. This maybe she's running in like the city of Baltimore. I don't know, but she's this black woman who's like a Republican, and you know that blows my mind every time I see these fucking people. Right? 
Because it, it's just like, think about Tim Scott, the lone black senator. You know how lonely that nigga must be? Like, just, I mean, he didn't recognize himself as that, but that's just like a really sad existence. Um, do you think there's, what, what does it mean that black and Latino voters, and I understand that the Latino vote is not monolithic. You know, there are, you know, white Hispanics who vote similarly to white voters, right? I understand that. But what do you think it means that Trump doubled his support among black voters? And is that anything to be concerned about in the future as the Republican Party possibly attempts to rebrand itself as a multiracial working class party, which is like, we know that's bullshit. I I think it means something. I think there are some attempts from some like very online left black folks who are trying to make it mean more than what it is, especially when it comes to black men. Mm. I think they blame black blame black men was a whole thing for like a week, bro. <laughs> Jamel Hill again yeah, was like, hold up, nigga, it's my fault. <laughs> what sucks is that, you know, I've I've been a fan of Jamel Hill for so long because Me too. <laughs> you know, because I'm like I'm a big NBA fan. And so I loved her show with um with Michael, what's his face? Can't remember his name no more. They had a show called Numbers Don't Lie. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Yes, she was once again involved in that. And so I think there is a lack of like substantive engagement with black men who feel, I don't want to use the word disaffected again. There's like another word. Aggrieved. Aggrieved. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. They feel aggrieved by uh, a system where neither party really is working for them. So Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a Trump is working for me vote. I think this is a no one's working for me vote. And y'all told me I had to vote anyway. And I've already done the Democrats for X amount of years. So let me just try this other option. Mm. That that is my like kind of preliminary, like kind of nihilistic, though. Yeah. Afro pessimism a little bit. I mean, I don't know if I'm using that term right, but it seems like it, you know, probably. And I do think there's like a a bit of pessimism, I think, coming from like just watching Ice Cube's one of his interviews where, or it was like an Instagram video that he did. So it wasn't an mm-hmm. interview. It was just like him talking to mm-hmm. his followers. And he was distraught. He was like, mm-hmm. you know what, man? I wish I could see my face, so I'm trying to act it. <laughs> Exasperated is how she looks. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Nobody. I mean, I'm not for Trump. I, I ain't for nobody. I'm mm-hmm. not endorsing nobody. I don't know what any of them are going to do. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... This was an option, so I'm going to try it. I'm for us. Yeah. And like that, that was the tone that he set where even me just being slightly critical of Ice Cube for like even thinking that he can align or not, or just even work with Donald Trump or help Donald Trump or whatever the Mm. the phrase Donald Trump's administration was using. The fact that he can even think that could be productive at all is like, it's a rookie move in my opinion. Exactly. But that even slight criticism got so many folks in my mentions like but he's right like this is how it is like this is how we feel Blexit right like Candace Owens is doing Blexit right (laughs) like this idea of the exodus of black voters from the Democratic Party yes and so and and I don't even think you know they're necessarily going to be leaving the party but it was just like this election is coming down to a man who has built his career on demonizing black people period Mm, demonizing black communities saying that white people can enter a racial jungle demonizing women, black women on wealth or women on welfare. But obviously, we know, the racial undertones of that Mm -hmm. saying that young kids who grow up on welfare and we already know the racial coding with that could end up being the the predators of tomorrow. And there's Mm -hmm. leaving them. These but Malika, he didn't use the term super predators, though, right? Yeah, the super predators, (laughs) apparently it's not. Um, So using this kind of, of these scare tactics, again, to attract white moderates, and consistently denying like black people of basic human rights and and people of color abroad because he was like drumming he was like one of the the major like political figures supporting the war in Iraq and mm. saying that we have to do so he's an imperialist capitalist and frankly a racist yeah and i mean he crafted the 93 crime bill with an arch segregationist uh by the name of Strom Thurmond he was crafting a bill to create a drug czar under the Reagan administration with Strom Thurmond, Jesus. which Ronald Reagan said was too far right. <laughs> <laughs> Did he call the people monkeys or some shit like that? And Ronald Reagan's telling you, hi, hey, bro, that's a little bit too. So, so just to be fair, the, the bill itself 
the, the argument that the Reagan administration used was that they are part of a small government and you're trying to put more like, you know, balloon our our budget for this drug czar and this whole other thing to, you know, affect the war on drugs. Like we cool, bro. Like calm that down. No, nah, we could just use the nascent white supremacists like, you know, militias that were growing up, popping up across the country at the time to like, you know, quell any social unrest among the black. Exactly. We don't we don't need like a head over all of that. And so yeah. Joe Biden was asking for them to be like a drug czar, like a chief with all, you know, for all of that kind of drug policy. And he aligned with Strom Thurmond to get this bill out. Jesus. So I am not faulting any black person for being uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Not a single one. And I am, I might be Afro-pessimist myself. I'm frustrated that we could have all this energy behind a transformative, radical justice movement mm. that can end up in the hands of the man who authored a draconian bill. And Kamala Harris, who executed that exact sort of framework and architecture as a prosecutor. Isn't that bleak as fuck? It's so bleak. It's so bleak. <laughs> I, do not, I, I cannot blame any black person for, for feeling that way and being like, fuck it. Like, you know that meme where it's like, it's uh, it's like, I, I can't even describe it, but it's like. <laughs> it's like, I mean, essentially it's like, why would I bother? Right. I mean, I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I voted third party. What you're saying you did? I didn't vote for Joe Biden in Georgia. Yeah. I voted third right. party. Right. So yeah. if I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm a like weirdo. I'm politically like aware and active, I guess. But like, if I did that, knowing what I know, think about how many other young black people like myself, it's like that guy at the town hall, the young black guy who asked Biden, what do you have to offer to the black community besides you ain't black if you don't vote for me? And of course, in, you know, classic Joe Biden fashion, because his brain is like fucking tapioca right now. He just gave like this word salad answer that was like, you know, very indicative of the Democratic Party's like attitude towards black people, which is like, who are you going to vote for? The Republicans? For real? Like, we should we should all be aghast and insulted yeah. when people come to us like that. Yeah. There's no reason any of us should... I mean, there are reasons. We already know. But the fact that we can accept that and keep it moving, it's it's alarming to me. Yeah. It really is alarming to me. And it's frightening. Yeah. And I I can only hope for our sake as a people, that we can find ways to to operate independently of this traditional two-party system. Mm. I have absolutely no hope that it can be reformed. None whatsoever. I work none. I I work (laughs) with a social justice organization in East New York, Brooklyn, called Operation Power, that is focused on... Oh, I used to live there. East New York, so... Yeah, East New York. Yeah, yeah, I used to live there for a bit. Yeah. I'm originally from New York. So. Oh, for real? When did you yeah, yeah. when did you live there? Um, just a couple of years ago, actually, like about four years ago, probably. Do you know Assemblymember Charles Barron? No, I don't. Sounds familiar. Uh, so he he co-founded this social justice organization. He's a former Black Panther Party member, mm. and the focus of Operation Power is to move towards independent Black politics. I don't think there's any other way for us to actually get what we need through a national electoral strategy in my lifetime, maybe eventually, but none that I can foresee. So I think we have to work diligently on local politics, independent of the traditional Democratic Party machine. That sounds similar to what was going on in Jackson, Mississippi. It is actually. Yeah. We, we work, we've worked with them. Like we've worked with, like a, I wouldn't say a sister organization, but our co-founder, Assemblymember Barron, is, um, he was good friends with Chokwe Lumumba mm-hmm. Sr., who was the father of Chokwe Antar Lumumba. I grew up in Black radical organizations. I grew up in the New African People's Organization, which is what Operation uh, Cooperation Jackson grew out of. It grew mm. out of the African People's Organization. And so, like, this is this is not just a recent or, like, a nascent ideology for me mm. or, you know, kind of epiphany. This is what grounded, really, my entire upbringing was mm. Black nationalism and thinking about independent black institutions, independent black power. Hmm. And I don't think we can really see a a future for ourselves without having that kind of vision incorporated in it some type of way. Hmm. As a socialist, I know that this system is impossible to overcome without 
allies without everybody really becoming socialist or a mm. mass of people becoming socialist. Mm. So, you know, I, I move more towards like revolutionary nationalism. And I would say that's probably like about the ideology that Operation Power operates from. Mm. Like we need to deal with like the very, you know, um, unique battles that black people face without having to explain racism 101. Yeah. But overall, we're not going to be able to overcome the system unless more people are thinking about breaking down the capitalist system. No, I agree, man. We have to start forming counter hegemonic like structures outside of like what currently exists because just on this foundation, it's not meant for us and it will never be for us, right? I don't know if that's Afro-pessimistic, but, you know, it's two Black people talking. We know that's, that's just like the truth, right? It just is what it is. You know? Yeah, I mean, and what's, what's fascinating to me is you had so many Black forebears from Du Bois to mm. Kwame Ture to Malcolm X and even to Martin Luther King to some extent to the founder of Black Liberation Theology, which is the theology that I grew up under it's a, a Christian denomination that grew out of the Black Power movement. Um, Shout out to Cornell West, <laughs> right? And yeah, yeah. Albert Clegg was a big proponent of Black liberation theology, and he was also in you know it was a it was a Black nationalist church, and he worked with with Malcolm X, and so we have so many examples of Black people who fought for decades, like they spent their entire lives dedicated to it, and at the end of the day, they're like, you know what, America ain't gonna be shit. So, <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to waste, you know, the next 40 years just trying to integrate into a burning house. I'm like, y'all, can we just like, <laughs> I got the buckets. We want to try and figure out one of these fires. But at the end of the day, like, let's build another house over here because this, this ain't going to exactly. work. This ain't going to work. Let, let me ask you one more question before you go, man. Not to, because uh, we were just talking about a revolutionary radical approach, but let's, Turn back to where we started in Georgia uh, real quick. You don't have to talk long about it. What do you, what do you think was going to happen with these Senate races, man? Because I feel like already, you know, we know what's going to happen. You know, Ossoff, Warnock are not going to run on a progressive platform that actually galvanizes non-voters and, you know, Black people to come back out to the polls. What do you think is going to happen with that? Show? I think I think it is very likely that... We don't have that energy. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, if this, if this, it could go either way. You know, if this energy is maintained, if the organizers who have been down there are continuing their work, which they have been, I don't think any of this would be happening without black organizers. Um, so it made their job easier. Like they did a lot of work, but it also made their job easier that there was a fascist yeah. who was on, you know, news, cable news channels 24 seven. That let 200,000 people die. Right. And that, that made, shoot, like 250 at this point. 300,000 maybe, right? If we, yeah. That made the threat very visceral. Yeah. So, you know, that made Biden's job. Basically, he didn't really have to do nothing but just, you know, talk about Donald Trump. And mm. Donald Trump just needed to talk. That was literally all he had to do um, to mess himself up with a lot of voters. Um, but not enough, clearly. Mm. And we don't we don't really have that existential threat. Uh, as in the visceral threat, obviously there was always going to be this threat of like what mo white moderation does to us. Mm -hmm. But without that, I think it's going to be hard to energize black voters. And so it's very likely that Ossoff and, and Warnock could lose because Democrats haven't campaigned on anything but Trump. So if you're not coming up with an agenda and Trump's not in the picture, what what's your alternative? Well, that's exactly why they did so dismally down ballot. Right. Because people were like, you know, I voted for Biden. Sorry. I don't need to like, you know, support Democrats like down ballot across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did my job. Um, That's what y'all said I had to do. So I did the bare minimum. Exactly. And now I got to go back to work or go take care of kids and I can't show up. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that's why, like, you know, I think that part of this show is I mean, I think electoralism like is a tool in the toolbox. But I think part of this show through a historical materialist Marxist lens personally for me is trying to like explain to people like where we are now, how we get here and how the fuck we could get out. And at the end of the day, it's really about building these counter hegemonic institutions outside of like electoralism, because we don't even on an ecological timeline, we don't have enough time, right, with climate change to elect like, you know, 20 AOCs, right? I don't even know if that would be desirable at this point. Um, Malika, thank you so much, man. What, Where can people find you at? Um, I'll include some links to your articles, but like, what do you have going on right now? Are you working on anything? I am. I actually just came back from Milwaukee yesterday. I'm working on a project on the Black working class in the Midwest. 
So we'll see what happens with that. I'm just letting you know what I'm up to, but there's nothing that people can check out with that yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a columnist for Jen Mag, G-E-N. So you can find me there. I'm on Twitter at Malika Jabali. I'm on Insta at Miss Jabali because I get to write longer posts on on Instagram. So if you want to yeah. like pontificate yeah. about something, you know, yeah. IG. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's basically it. And I'm a, I'm a columnist for The Guardian. So I'm there like once or twice a month. Sweet, sweet. And y'all, please check out uh, Malika's work. She does some of the best reporting on not just the Black electorate, but also the law and policing. Like I just had, when I started this thing, I just was like, okay, what guests? Because a lot of people follow me, right? And I follow people back. But there are very few guests whose work that I've enjoyed reading and has formed my kind of worldview over the past couple of years. So I was like, yo, I got to talk to her, dude. Oh. Especially like with the election, you know, coming up or has already passed. So again, like, I really appreciate it. Yo. I appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me and, and for those words. That's really thoughtful. And I'm, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just an angry black woman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Twitter account. Wow. <laughs> well, we should all be angry, yo. Uh, we should. Thanks, yeah, like Thank you. Oh, yeah.